The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, February 14th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. You know, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump might seem similar. Strong, autocratic, both favor advancing Russian interests throughout the world. But I speak to you today less than 24 hours after National Security Advisor Mike Flynn was fired for cooing into the ear of the Russian ambassador about sanctions. Now, remember when Trump staffers described not notifying key federal departments and members of Congress about the executive order blocking immigration from seven nations? And they dismissed that as perhaps we've disregarded niceties. You were talking to the Russians, niceties abounded. And remember, the day after that conversation occurred, which Flynn's firing now confirms, Putin chose not to retaliate for the U.S. sanctions. Let me remind you of the president's reaction that day. We have just got a tweet from Donald Trump, his first uh, public response since the sanctions that were issued by the United States uh, against Russia. And it's really a breathtaking tweet. Here you have uh, Donald Trump saying... uh, Great move on delay by Vladimir Putin. That is to say, Putin deciding not to retaliate. I always knew he was very smart. It's easy to seem smart when someone sneaks you the answers to the test, i.e., go easy, Vlad. We're going to go easy on you. But will he keep going easy? A Russian warship is 12 miles off the coast of Delaware today. It's international waters, yet the ship, known as an AGI, Auxiliary General Intelligence, has advanced spying technology. Also today, the New York Times reports that the Russians have developed missiles which have been deemed to be in violation of the 1987 treaty between the U.S. and Russia that banned ground-launch intermediate-range missiles. And so this is why Vlad and Donald are so different. See, Donald is unlucky. His national security advisor was stripped away from him because, per Donald's tweets, of illegal leaks. Again, Trump victimized. He lost the election thanks to illegal votes. Trump unfairly cheated against. Trump you, those canceled apprentice spinoffs, Trump stakes, every Trump failure, just a consequence of being cheated. Whereas Vlad, now that guy's not unlucky. I mean, every time a viable Russian opposition opponent emerges, turns out that guy's a master criminal. What luck Vlad has. First, Mikhail Kordakovsky, he backed Putin opponents. Voila! Turns out he evaded taxes. Then there's Sergei Oldatsov. A few years ago, the anti-Putin protest leader was jailed for, quote, resisting officers' recommendations to cross the road in the correct place, served that term, and now he's in jail for four and a half years. And his old friend, Alexei Navalny, also an anti-Putin critic, it turns out he was corrupt too. And his conviction means he can't run for office. What great luck. Bad luck for Alexei. And even if you question Navalny's fraud and corruption conviction as Amnesty International and several other human rights groups have, there are other charges that are very troubling. Like he defrauded a French perfume company. And this is the big one. He shot an elk out of season. How do you let that guy run for president? But maybe those opponents actually are the lucky ones because it turns out a lot of Putin opponents happen to wind up dead. What a stroke of fortune for the Russian leader. Vladimir Kuramurza, he had a bout of poisoning two years ago, got over it, but today he lies in a coma in Moscow after picking up the poisoning bug again. The guy's just not careful. 
Before the latest poisoning, he was traveling around Russia promoting a documentary about Boris Nemtsov. Boris Nemtsov was a liberal opposition politician who was assassinated near the Kremlin in 2015. The Kremlin itself led an investigation which fingered Islamic extremists. But again, a headache for Putin happens to be eliminated. Russian actuaries have different tables for smoker, non-smoker, history of cancer, and Putin critic. Trump would like to have some of Putin's luck rub off on him. As it is now, it just seems that a lot of Putin's stench might be what winds up enveloping our president, who claims that Vlad once called him brilliant, which he did. Though the Russian word yarki means something closer to colorful than smart, still Trump took it as a garland. But Putin, that guy's a giver. He even sent a giant wreath of red roses and carnation to Boris Nemtsov's funeral. On the show today, I spiel about Flynn, Trump, and the totally non-superhuman, actually kind of anodyne opposition force that could stop him. But first, from the Russian bear to the mountain goat, John Darniel is here to discuss his new book, his music, and even a touch of the herpetology of southern Spain. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Jeremy works at the Video Hut in Nevada, Iowa. People have been returning tapes saying there's some weird footage in there that's not part of the movie. The year is 2000. Irene is an Iowa housewife who finds herself drawn to a church, a preacher who operates out of a storefront. She has a five-year-old daughter and a husband who loves her, but there's something longing. It's 1975. John Darnielle is the lead singer and songwriter of The Mountain Goats. He also writes books. One was long listed for the National Book Award, Wolf in White Van. He has a new novel, Universal Harvester, and that's where Jeremy and Irene live. Hello, John. Hey. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. So Universal Harvester tells the story in pieces. It jumps ahead. It jumps back. And it's, like I mentioned, a story about pieces being inserted into videotapes. Now, I know about your musicianship and how you started with boom boxes and actual cassettes. So I'm wondering if there's something about physical tape that can be spliced and altered that compels you. Yeah, probably. I mean, it's a... I have a giant record collection. I've always, since I was a child, you know, which is sort of when you make your hard connections, right? Uh like things that you can hang on to, you can look at while you're listening or that you can parse. Like the time you used to spend, especially if you're very young renting videos, you have 
a limited amount of time to give to the video and a limited amount of money to spend on renting them. So you wander around the store, grabbing the cases and looking at them and reading the descriptions and trying to sift through the stuff that is just copied to try and make you buy or rent it versus the stuff that tells you whether you are going to like it or not. And sort of, you know, when you hit the right combo and you grab something you didn't know about, right? And you well, try this, you know, get it home and half an hour in you go, this is exactly the movie for me, right? That's this amazing feeling. That sort of thing is sort of lost when accessibility is increased. That's not really a loss, but it's a change. That connection to physical things and the sort of the slowness of the process of of seeing and hearing uh, in the past is something that is of interest to me. Yes, and also the stakes of it, because now with all this video on demand, not only don't you have that search feature, but if eight minutes in, it doesn't speak to you, it's four clicks away to go to the next thing. I do it all the time, right? And uh, back in the day, if you had rented your movie and you'd already driven out to wherever, right, and you came back and you put a bag of popcorn in the microwave or whatever, heaven forbid, and you start watching and it sucks then you just watch it for another 90 minutes and cap on it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and say how bad it is, right? You you run riffs on it and uh, you do that. I, I had a friend who used to do that with like, every Friday. It's, it becomes more fun than, than trying to find the good movie, right? So it is the case that like with, with a lot of stuff, you have the luxury of turning it off and being able to find something that's better suited to you. You're able to tailor things to your pleasure instead of to your curiosity, which is a mixed blessing as far as I'm concerned. People want excellence. Well, that's fine. You know, people want what they want. That's fine. But I'm kind of interested in stuff that is neither what I was looking for nor swinging all the way for the fences, right? And if you use baseball metaphors, a guy who just puts the ball in play, right, yeah. is as valuable as your home run hitter in, 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 at the end of the season, right? And uh, and those are the artists I'm often more interested in, the ones who put the ball in play somewhere, right? Have you been working on a book in some form or another for the last few years? Have there been big gaps when you haven't been writing a book? I like to work. So as soon as I am done with something, they're not the same day, but pretty close. I just start something else. And I'll start something else in the middle also. If I'll get an idea, I'll just write some stuff up, you know, on an airplane or in in a van or whatever and and write a couple pages. And if it looks good, you know, I'll say, oh, remember that. So, yeah, so I always have something on the stove, right? I've always liked to be working. I don't uh, like to rest. Do you write songs as you've been writing these books? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I write songs all the time. I write songs right. uh, just, yeah, just, I mean, because it doesn't even take a whole day to do a song. A song is a, a part of the day. So when you hit on a good line, do you always know that it's meant for the book or the song, or do you ever just put it in the good lines uh, file that I imagine you keep? No, they, I, there is there's no such file. Uh, when I'm working on a song, I'm working on that, right? And uh, and plus, I write in meter, and so uh, so if I if I wrote a song line that sounded like it had to go into a novel, I, I I can't imagine that. When I'm working, I can imagine, but it doesn't work like that. If I'm sitting writing prose, you know, especially because books are so big that anything you come up with, you go, you put that in the book too, put that in the book too, put that in the right. book too, right? Whereas with a song, a song is a matter of focus. A song is a matter of of shaving away, of condensing. Yeah, song's a sculpture. You have to keep shaving it away. Whereas, yeah. I, I interviewed Elvis Costello, though, and he said that um, he's even had lines that he keeps around. He kept around for almost a decade before he found the right song to put it in. There's what I consider the, the greatest title I've ever written. There was no way of writing a song that would be adequate to the title. So I just wrote a... But, but I wanted the song to be out there. I wanted the song to exist in the world. So I went ahead and wrote a song. It was a fine song and everything. But you can't... The, you know, I am not songwriter enough and i don't think anybody is to to be good enough for the title wizard buys a hat right so, oh yeah wizard buys a lot to live up to <laughs> it was there i was like you know what 
you're going to start new notebooks and you're going to forget about this one and it will just sit there and when you're 80 you'll go what happened to Wizard Buys a Hat so I wrote the song it's a fine song it was on a little obscure EP but uh, but yeah Sunsets on the broad square and lights come up Feel like this town's gonna put a quick end to me But if I came here to drown I'm gonna take a few people down This is the church occupied by the enemy I read that, or I think I heard that, your process is when you write, even when you write, it makes sense if you're writing a song, but when you are writing a novel, you read what you wrote out loud to see if it rings true. Multiple times, yeah. I I guess that means that you can only, it would, that technique would work for Hemingway, but not for Dickens. And it's, there's probably good amounts of literature that really wouldn't benefit from the uh, read out loud process. Oh, I don't agree. I think I think I would be surprised if Dickens didn't read his stuff out loud. He actually, toward the end of his life, he came over to America to do reading tours, and he became yeah, kind of a big. They sold out. Yeah, they were huge, right? And yeah. he would do this whole big fuming thing, this presentation <laughs> where he'd collapse at the end of it and stuff like that. But I mean, I think I don't think everybody reads aloud. By William Gass, I know, uh, writes specifically by the pen, through the mouth, for the ear. That's the way yeah. I like to write writing was poetry before it was prose and it was song before it was poetry and i think i always am looking for that connection i want it to sound good when when i do the audiobook i always that's when i notice it's like oh you know if you if you were william gass you'd have stuck with that one because william gass's sentences every last one of them reads beautifully aloud even when they're discussing the most hateful horrible things uh you know they, they have this gorgeous sonorous quality uh whereas you know sometimes i'll say well look You've stated what is true in this sentence, whether it's mellifluous or not is a secondary question. It's just things like, well, phrases like to the, right? Yeah. When you are reading, you know, he went down to the boat, right, or whatever, you tend to elide that. You should avoid that phrase if you're writing for the ear because to the is every time you do it, it's sort of like you have a, a very limited supply of those before the ear is just mashing them all together, you know. I, that's not something where I go, okay, how can I eliminate that problem? I just go ahead and do that and move on because people do say that. Does it steer you away from entire certain words? For me, similarly, that's a word I don't like how I say it out loud. Yeah, I don't love that. I don't love the sound of similarly uh, at all. I'm not a person who hates words. Like, like I don't think there are words that are bad, you know? No. It's, it's a question of, of context. But that's not one in my omniscient third-person voice. I would use something else, I'm pretty sure. But it would be that type, the ones that your tongue trips over. All right, so now... That means it's a Mountain Goats moment. And as you know, if you've been listening to the gist, whenever you hear that sound, we ask our guest a few questions about Mountain Goat lyrics. It almost never works. My last guest, Kathleen Sibelius, had no idea. But I think it might work with (laughs) John Did you really ask Kathleen Sibelius about Mountain Goats? I I should have. For a second there, I'll be still my heart. (laughs) On the monkey song, there is a reference to an Andalusian coral snake. The Andalusian. This snake seems not to exist in nature. Was it chosen for the syllable count imagery or what? I just think you need to learn more about snakes, my man. There's the Andalusian coral snake. 
totally is a snake. Very much oh, a snake. Would I lie to you? I just, whenever well, I Googled it, I only got mountain goat lyrics. I didn't get actual snakes. As I do, as I remember, the monkey song, pretty much every line is just about the syllables, right? That's the, um, yes. I'll give you the genesis of the monkey song. I was uh, hanging with a friend and I was uh, mock translating German, right? I think it was like a Schubert leader, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the Winterkreiser or something. The line would, I mean, I, I don't know the lyrics to any of the Winterkreiser, but, you know, the Sing a line of German. Dietrich Fischer Discow would go. No, no, no. I would go. Ah, uh, uh, he says, um, "There is a monkey uh, <laughs> it, in the basement," and he would sing the next line. Dietrich Fischer Discow, one of those beautiful male voices ever. You know, sings like, uh, and he says, um, "Where did the monkey come from?" Right, and I was doing the shtick, and it was funny to me. Right, and so, so, and, I, and when that was one of the ad lib shticks on on this thing I was doing, I thought, "Oh, that's funny." You know, I, when I got home later that day. I played that little riff with the B string. I thought, oh, that's a cute riff. I had that line. So the whole, you know, what is it? Uh, cool air comes through Venetian blinds and the planets yeah. in the heavens so perfectly. That was, there's no meaning. And the other thing is I was writing a lot in meter in those days. And mm-hmm. so, uh, like, I mean, I always write in meter, but I was my meters were really good back then. I was studying poetry oh. really hard. So my yeah. meters then were really hard. You know, they were very, very, I was avoiding feminine endings. I was avoiding all the kinds of stuff that I consider lazy poetry writing. And uh, when you're on your game with those kinds of rhythms, you can do some really fun stuff just with the sound. You know, uh, uh, I take in my surroundings, I memorize them all, the scuff marks on the stone floor, the powder burns on the eastern wall. There's nothing in play there. There's all just images. There's a monkey in the basement. Where did the monkey come from? John Darniel, Universal Harvester, is his new novel. Mountain Goats is his band. Thanks so much for your time. It was excellent talking to you. Thank you, man. We'll see you again. Take care. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com and now the spiel Yesterday on the program, we had on David Frum, smart guy, conservative stalwart, diagnostician of our current political ills. Frum echoed the sentiments of a lot of people of goodwill in this fraught era. He said it will take essentially extraordinary effort to stand up to the threat that the Trump administration embodies. Weekends of marches, a convalescing of disparate groups opposing the Trump administration, newfound momentum among people who might not have even voted during election, and that all contains strains of the extraordinary. But I am here to predict what will ultimately be Trump's undoing. You ready? Competent people doing their jobs. Trump and his staff are incompetent people without a working knowledge of how the complex machinery of state operates. And they have proven to be vulnerable, 
not to brave crusaders or charismatic Spartacus-type leaders or Batman. They're susceptible to competent people doing their jobs. Judge Robart in Seattle, competent, did his job. All three judges on the Ninth Circuit, competent people doing their jobs. The interviewers like Chuck Todd and Steve Kornacki and Jake Tapper, who questioned Kellyanne Conway until she looks foolish, they're not superhuman. They're not new murrows. They're not journalistically gifted virtuosos. I mean, they may be, but they didn't show that in that moment. They merely were competent people doing their jobs. Sally Yates, fired and cited for betrayal. Actually, she alerted the White House that Mike Flynn was susceptible to blackmail. They didn't want to hear it because she was competent and she did her job. Now let's look at the other factors that led to the Flynn ouster. White House staffers who saw what was going on recognized that their pledge was to the Constitution, not to the man who lives in the White House. And they told the Washington Post about it. Journalists at the Post put together an airtight story that Trump couldn't lie his way out of. Competent people doing their jobs. But the deviousness, the misdirection, the compromised nature of the National Security Advisor, that is not actually what proved to be his undoing. It's what the public learned about how devious, misdirected, and compromised he was. The White House knew it. They didn't want to do anything about it. It's when the public learned and when the public saw a disconnect between what Mike Pence said and what the White House said that Flynn was in trouble. That was competent people doing their job. That's how the public learned. The White House knew about this for almost a month. It was the public record of them saying that they didn't know about it that damned Flynn. Take, for instance, this January 15th exchange between Mike Pence and Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday. Did Mike Flynn ever discuss lifting sanctions in any of those conversations? Do you know? I, I talked to General Flynn yesterday, and the conversations uh, that took place at that time uh, were not in any way related uh, to new U.S. sanctions uh, against Russia or the expulsion of diplomats. All right. Well, not all right. There was actually some wiggle room in the answer there when he said, I talked to General Flynn yesterday and the conversations that took place at that time were not in any way related to the sanctions. Well, maybe he's saying that the conversations that took place between him and Flynn, or maybe even if he wasn't saying that, the whole the conversations that took place at that time, that can include some wriggle room so that Pence could hold out that, oh, maybe some conversations at another time would be the ones about sanction. In fact, that seemed to be what was going on in a different interview that Pence conducted that same day. This was on CBS Face the Nation. I, I talked to General Flynn about uh, that, that conversation. It actually was initiated when uh, on, on Christmas Day he had sent a text to the Russian ambassador to express uh, uh, not only Christmas wishes, but uh, sympathy for mm -hmm. the loss of life in the airplane crash that took place. It was strictly coincidental that they had a conversation. They did not discuss anything having to do with uh, the United States' decision to um, expel diplomats or, or uh, impose a censure against Russia. But listen to how host John Dickerson followed up. Well, look, uh, General Flynn has been in touch with uh, diplomatic leaders and security leaders in some 30 countries. That's exactly but, what the incoming National Security absolutely. Advisor should do. But what I can confirm, having spoken to him yeah. about it, is that those conversations that happen to occur around the time uh, that the United States uh, took took action to expel diplomats uh, had nothing whatsoever to do with those sanctions. But but that still leaves open the possibility that there might have been other conversations about the sanctions. Yeah, I, I, I don't believe there were okay. more okay. conversations. Okay. Let's but, move on. Uh, okay. 
Pence was wrong and Flynn is gone. Without that Q&A, there is a case that Flynn would still be there. The Trump administration knows that its kryptonite is competent people doing their jobs. So it does everything to thwart them. It tries to delegitimize judges, the news media, facts. And the Flynn accusations coming from the media, the FBI, and the Department of Justice do not end with contact that Flynn had with the Russians after Trump was elected. That is not the sum total of what the charges were. They're about campaign contact between the Russians and the Trump campaign during the election. If the denials about the sanctions prove totally false, what do we think about the denials that the Trump campaign coordinated with the Russians? Because right after Flynn denied that the conversation happened between Flynn and the Russians, a conversation now that we know did take place, Pence went on to deny to Chris Wallace that the campaign was coordinating with the Russians. That's why he won in the landslide election. There were any contacts, sir. I'm just trying to get an answer. Yeah, of course not. Why would there be any contacts between the campaign? Uh, Chris, this is all a distraction, and it's all a part of a narrative to delegitimize uh, the election and and, and to question the legitimacy of this presidency. The American people see right through it. Mm Mm-hmm. But it is clear that the Trump administration knows and fears competent people doing their job. Let's go back to that one press conference that Trump had between Election Day and the inauguration. We all remember the funny fireworks between him and Jim Acosta of CNN. Since you're attacking us, can you give us a question? Since you're, no, Mr. President-elect, go ahead. Mr. President-elect, ahead. since you are attacking no, our news not organization, you. Not can you. you give us a chance? Your organization You are attacking our news organization. organization. Can you give us a chance Let's to go. ask a question, sir? Go ahead. Sir, can Quiet. you state, Mr. President-elect, go ahead. Can you state categorically, Mr. President-elect, can you give us a question? Don't be rude. You're attacking us. Can you give us a question? Don't be rude. No, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You sta- can you stay categorically? You are fake news. Sir, go ahead. can you stay categorically that nobody... No, Mr. President-elect, that's not go appropriate. Ahead. Well, what was Jim Acosta trying to ask? He was trying to ask, did you or your people have contact with the Russians or their people during the campaign? It was never allowed to be asked, and it was never answered. It was later answered in that sequence of denial, which we know to be at least partly inaccurate. Will we ever learn the truth? The White House won't shed light on its own. Trump's enablers in Congress seem ill-inclined to be especially curious on this matter. So once more, we have to rely on competent people doing their jobs. They have been holding up the republic thus far. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Chris Berube who produces the show in the grand tradition of such Canadian luminaries as Joe Trudeau, Joe Aykroyd, Shania Joe, and all the members of Rush, Joe Lee, Joe Pert, and Joe Lifeson. Mary Wilson, just producer, has completed a full and thorough investigation into Mar-a-Lago security. She's concluded, better than Chuck E. Cheese, worse than Red Lobster. Executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, has just cleared a full week on his calendar to binge watch and really get to know the YouTube sensation PewDiePie. Because this is the future, oh damn it. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of Panoply, wants to make clear that he is in no way Kim Jong-un's estranged half-brother. Just not true. The gist, we're here to warn you that Malaysian women carrying poison needles acting in concert with the North Koreans are the new Ebola. We need Chris Christie right now. Peru, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.